Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 and now back to lifeline with craig roberts it was a number of years ago traveling into china when i first very clearly and distinctively became aware of the international problem of human trafficking you know we think of slavery and things of this sort from an american perspective largely based on america's experience with the issue of slavery back in the 1800s It was an eye-opening, startling experience for me to come to the realization that human trafficking is very much alive all over the world today, even taking place here in the United States. And it it takes place in, in many fashions for a lot of different reasons. In China, walking along a street in a major city of the South one day and seeing a number of young girls, some of whom had obvious limbs missing, had been maimed, perhaps I thought, in an accident of some sort. And talking with a missionary friend and interpreter, I began to inquire about the alarming number of young ladies that I saw on this particular street that seemed to have a missing arm or a missing hand, something of this nature. And I inquired as to why this was, feeling it was kind of unusual. He went on to explain to me that, well, these are cast-offs. These are young girls who had been kidnapped from their home villages, brought into major cities, and sold as sex slaves, largely the tourist trade. And on occasions, these young girls would fail to cooperate, would perhaps try to uh, turn their captors into the authorities, and so as retribution, they would typically cut off an arm or a hand to maim them in one fashion or another as a means of defiguring them, making them less desirable, handicapping their ability to earn a living, and ultimately punishing them for not being cooperative with the sex traffickers. That opened my eyes to what has become a global problem. And as we talk about this topic today, I'm joined by Sean Litton. Sean is Vice President of Field Operations on behalf of International Justice Missions. They direct casework operations around the world in places from Latin America to Africa, South Asia, and Southeast Asia, developing intervention strategies and advocating with local and national authorities to address the problem of human trafficking around the globe. And Sean, great to have you on the program today. Craig, it's wonderful to be with you. Thank you. That experience that I had in China a number of years ago, I sadly have come to discover, was not a unique and rare one, but in fact is taking place in more and more places around the globe today, even in so-called developed nations. Tell us why. Well, uh, there, the main problem, is, as we see it, is in uh, countries where the laws against these crimes are not enforced at all. In other words... The traffickers, the criminals, the pimps who are uh, uh, selling these children have no fear of any sanction, no fear of any repercussion, no fear of any negative consequences, and so they engage in this practice with impunity, despite the fact that in almost every country uh, today, it's against the law. It's against the law to sell children for sex. 
And yet, in spite of that, of course, we see the sex trafficking trade uh, growing pretty significantly. Of course, we've perhaps caught a special or two of what goes on in, in places such as uh, parts of Southeast Asia um, and countries that we're all too familiar with, Thailand, for example. And as this sex trafficking trade is, is growing and developing, um, talk to us a bit about, number one, how girls get even pulled into all of this and, and why it seemingly is being allowed to flourish in some countries. Right. So the children that get involved typically um, are migrating. So they're, they're, they're from very poor and impoverished areas. And someone comes to their village, somebody from their same ethnic group, uh, they generally refer to them as an auntie. Um, they come to the village, maybe they're from the village or a nearby village, and they, they say, tell their parents, you know, I can help your daughter find a good job in the city. The daughter feels a debt of gratitude to her parents uh, in many of these cultures, and, and she's obligated to care for them. And so she wants to help her parents, so she'll go with this auntie. And, and then the auntie, uh, it turns out, is a trafficker. And rather than give her a good job or take care of her, this young woman will be sold into a brothel. And once there, um, she's, she's locked away. She's, she's kept from going for help. But even if she could go for help, usually she doesn't speak the local language. Um, she sees the police coming by the brothel and collecting money every week, so there's really nowhere for her to turn. She has no access to her family. They're from a village up in the hills or far, far away or even in another country in many cases. And she's literally trapped. And then uh, if she refuses to participate, if she refuses to cooperate, they'll deny her food. Um, in many cases, she'll be beaten. She'll be forced to watch, watch pornography. And just over time, they will wear her will down until she submits. She submits herself to this abuse um, that goes on day after day after day after day. And these girls, Sean, literally get trapped into this scenario. They're far away from home. They're embarrassed about the circumstances that have taken place. And quite often, those that are engaged in the sex trafficking threaten these girls and their families, don't they? Absolutely, yes. And so, you know... The trafficker will tell the girl, I paid good money for you, and if, if you don't cooperate, then, you know, I will find your family. Or there'll, there'll be stories of girls who have attempted to run away only to be brought back and killed in front of the other girls to frighten them into submission and cooperation. It's pretty horrifically manipulative, isn't it? I mean, aside from the horror of what they're drawing these young girls into, quite often, as you suggest, uh, they are trying to better their station in life, maybe move from a village into the city with the hope and promise of earning more money to take care of their family. Maybe there's somebody in the family that's ill. They need uh, money because of additional medical expenses, things of this sort. We've even seen cases of human sex trafficking taking place where women and men sometimes are being lured with promises of, of immigration into the United States, and if you come over, we'll help uh, pay your way and get you into the country, things of this sort, only to find out that once they arrive here, not having any contacts, having no command of the language, suddenly they're being forced into sex slavery. Exactly, yeah, and they have you know their their passport if they had one's been taken away so they're in the country illegally and they feel there's nowhere to turn if they go to the authorities they'll be arrested for you know illegal immigration 
We've seen the stories, as I mentioned earlier, coming out of places like Thailand, the Philippines, other so-called even uh, uh, sex tourism destinations. And certainly I think there's a growing sense of awareness of the problem globally. But I'm curious, Sean, based on your years of involvement with international justice missions, I understand you, in fact, came out of private practice in your own law firm to be involved in this ministry organization. Are we hearing more of these stories simply because the reporting is getting better, or are we hearing more of these stories because the horrificness of this crime is on the increase? It's hard to say exactly. There there's certainly is a great deal uh, more reporting and a great deal of it, more attention being uh, focused on this issue. But at the same time, what you have is massive economic migration happening um, as people in more and poorer countries move towards those who are more wealthy, where there's more jobs, and this is a this is part of globalization. It's part of a global phenomena. At, at the same time, more and more roads are getting into these villages, you know, that have been formerly isolated and safe, and by their isolation, and so then the traffickers have access to more and more. Uh, people to to move into the sex trade. So it's a combination of, of both greater attention on the issue and, again, I, I do think that's expanding as the process of globalization and the process of economic migration uh, increases. Talk to us a bit about the role that international justice missions is taking in not only addressing increased awareness of this uh creating a more hostile environment for those in, engaged in the trafficking in the slavery end of of all of this but then too uh the hope that your organization is providing and helping to get these women and sometimes men out of this terrible lifestyle right so when in our offices, so for example, I worked in an office in Thailand, also an office in the Philippines. So we'll do investigations, and we have undercover investigators that will go out and locate these establishments that are selling children for sex. We'll document the identity of those children, the identity of the individuals that are selling them. Um, we'll we'll bring that back. We have a team of lawyers that will review it. We'll write a report, and then we'll go to the local authorities. And, the, and advocate with the authorities and the evidence that we bring of the it's a violation of law but now they have such strong evidence of it that they can't deny it's happening and so we'll push them and push them until they take action and then the, the, the object there is to ensure that the girls are rescued and that the individuals that were exploiting them are brought to justice so there's an arrest, uh, criminal prosecution of the traffickers and the pimps and the brothel owners, hopefully leading to conviction, a, a sentence in prison. And then for the girls, we have teams of social workers that work with them in different um, homes. We call them aftercare homes, working on dealing with the uh, consequences of the abuse, both in terms of their emotional health, their spiritual health, and trying to find out whether they can return home, whether that's a viable option. If not, what would be a viable life option for them and giving them education and skills so that they can have a have new life. Oh, so there's just a multiplicity of levels that need to be addressed. And when we come back, I want to talk a bit about what's happening in terms of government involvement to try to deal with this, where the judicial system is, both here stateside and internationally. And most importantly, what the church, the body of Christ can be doing in partnering with and cooperating with organizations like International Justice Missions um, to help not only raise awareness, but also provide a way out 
for so many women all over the globe that have been caught up in human trafficking. I'm Craig Roberts. You're in tune with Lifeline. A brief timeout. Back to more of our conversation with Sean Litton, Vice President Field Operations for International Justice Missions, as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our special guest, Sean Litton. Sean is Vice President of Field Operations with International Justice Missions. You can get more information, by the way, on the organization online at IJM.org. That's IJM.org. We're talking about the plight of human trafficking around the globe. And, you know, it's interesting because so often when we think of slavery, we put it contextually in America, historically, into what happened here in the United States and many parts of the globe back in the 1800s. And it seems to be somewhat satisfying to think that we've dealt with the issue here at home and therefore it's no longer a problem. It's no longer our problem. But is it? Well, it is, in fact, at many levels. Not only does it continue to be a global problem, but in fact, in many respects, it's our problem, both in terms of the fact that many of these women that are being kidnapped or given promises of a new life in America brought here to be engaged, and they find out later, in the sex trade and then literally end up getting trapped in that lifestyle with no avenue to turn and here illegally, fearful of seeking out any assistance from police or the authorities. And then moreover, Growing numbers of people who travel abroad to engage in so-called sex tourism. It's a sad, sad state of affairs, and yet one that is um, reporting perhaps gets some better awareness increases is something that all of us need to be more educated upon and do something to bring justice to these people. Sean Litton is with us. And, Sean, let's talk a bit about um, the problem, whether it goes from um, sexual assault, bonded labor. I mean, there's a variety of reasons why. Why this kind of human trafficking is taking place. And as we suggest, it's not just a problem in the West. It's a problem uh, globally. Even the continent of Africa, we're seeing this take place. Yeah, it is a global uh, phenomenon. And it's, it's important to understand that when we talk about human trafficking, we're not just talking about sex, sexual slavery or sex trafficking. It's any type of for, uh, labor without consent. We're basically talking about slavery. It takes many different forms. So it could be working on a cocoa plantation in West Africa, or working on a fishing boat, forced little boys forced to work in a fishing boat in Ghana, or you know it could be young girls in brothels in Southeast Asia, or um, people working in a brick kiln or a rice mill or a rock quarry in India. So it takes many different forms, but it's all slavery. Even we've seen a recent increased awareness of the so-called uh, blood diamond trade, too. Mm, yeah, that's another area where anytime, you know, there's a, a lack of law enforcement and a permissive atmosphere where people need labor, it's always going to, you know, slave labor is always cheaper, right? But if there's no law enforcement, then there's no reason for the people um, who own the facility to, to pay, so they can just trick people into it. There's a plentiful supply of people who are desperate for work. This is a problem taking place at many tiers in the West, in the developed nations, in developing nations, and one that I think needs to be dealt with at a variety of levels. Talk to us a bit about the role, and uniquely, that IJM is playing in all of this. Well, the first thing that we're doing is... is in the places where we're working in Southeast Asia and India and Africa and Latin America, we're 
basically shining a, a, a flashlight right on the issue. But a, a lot of people will say there's terrible trafficking, but to actually go in, to work undercover, to actually document the situation, to show exactly how it's happening, and then to collaborate with the local justice authorities to take action, to take action against the perpetrators and to ensure the rescue and restoration of the victims. But that's not enough. It's just not enough to rescue um, rescue the girls. You've got to do something that prevents other girls, other young women, other people from experiencing this abuse. And in order for that to happen, there needs to be a reliable deterrent. There has to be an end to impunity. And so we work with in building the capacity and the will of the local justice system to actually enforce the law and extend the protection of the law um, to all to all the vulnerable young women in the in the area so that you know the the brothel owners um, move away from from working with women against their will from from trafficking in young children is this casual or are there degrees where it's highly organized and coordinated i I ask that question because there seems to be so many layers of this web that's taking place to you know kidnap women in one part of the world, manage to escond them and get them into countries like the United States, and then get them into a system over here, it would seem to me that at certain levels, uh, Sean, this isn't very casual, but in fact, highly organized. Yeah. So it's true that there's a full range. So, for example, in the United States, it is highly organized. You're dealing with organized crime. Same thing in Eastern Europe. In Asia, there are places where the criminals are highly organized. In other places, it's it's just a simple brothel that's being run by, you know, a, a local businessman, et cetera, a local pimp. Um, in in terms of the the labor trafficking, it could just actually be the regular business practice of that area is that you you trick people into working in your brick kiln or your rice mill, and then you you hold them there. And you never let them leave, and you and you pay them just enough to buy enough food to live, and it's a regular business practice. So it, it's not it's not even seen as a crime, even though it's against the law. I know that your organization has been successful at creating creating some pretty successful pilot programs in certain parts of the world. I know specifically in Metro Cebu in the Philippines over the last several years, um, you in working with local authorities and spreading out throughout the region uh, have been successful, I understand, Sean, in seeing a reduction in child sex trafficking of nearly 80 percent? Yeah, that's true. so in that in that case, um, it was a pilot project, and there was a uh, a measurement taken by a group of international criminologists to get a, a level of what was the level of abuse happening in the city, and then we instituted our program, basically increasing the capacity of law enforcement, the capacity of local prosecution, the judiciary, working with aftercare facilities to increase the level of services going to victims and. And then uh, three years later, when they came back and did another measurement to see the effect of the arrests and the rescues and all the rehabilitation, they found 80% fewer girls being exploited in the city and in the metropolitan area and 75% fewer establishments that had any children at all. It It was a pretty amazing result. In addition to not only reducing the atmosphere that, that allows this typically to, to flourish, providing victim relief, aftercare, uh, accountability then, too, for the perpetrators of all of this, um, long-term transformation, do you get the sense that we're starting to make some headway and moving in the right direction? 
Absolutely. In the Philippines, for example, so after we instituted that project and the government saw the results, they came to us and said, can you help us on a national level? And and the, the, the key issue with all these projects is, are they sustainable? In other words, unless it's the government itself doing it, no organization like IJM or any other organization can sustain it on their own. But in this case, the Philippines took the model in Cebu and is now replicating it throughout the country with their own money, their own resources. They're setting up new police units. They're expediting the prosecution of trafficking cases. They're increasing the capacity of the aftercare systems. The government's doing this on their own. And so we're seeing the ripple effect of just one model of showing how how it can work to increase the, 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 the enforcement of the law can reduce the problem, and now it's being replicated throughout the entire country. And then the other countries where we're working, we're seeing the same effect, that gradually it's happening at a, a slower rate, but gradually, um, as people see the results, they, they, want, they want to put more energy into it. And of course, your organization is helping to spearhead a lot of this, educate folks. And toward that end, we mentioned the fact that you are in town speaking at a conference dealing with this very issue. If ultimately, Sean, folks want to find out more about how they can get involved in partnering with IJM to make a difference in the role that the church needs to be playing, quite frankly, from the standpoint of our justice obligation, what kind of resources are available through the IJM website toward that end? Well, the the website is by far the best place to start. There's also um, a an app you can download if you have a smartphone. Um, you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Um, there's a, there's a book called Good News About a Justice that you can find you know through through the website or or through a um, a bookseller um, that kind of lays the foundation for what we're doing, what the biblical foundation is for seeking justice for the poor and the oppressed. Um, you can become a freedom partner. You can support the organization financially. You can pay for the rescue that the poor cannot afford to buy for themselves. Um, you can sign up to receive our uh, upcoming holiday gift catalog. You can give the gift of rescue to people. And uh, most importantly, and what I'd love for people to do, is join us as prayer partners. Um, you can do that through the website, and then you'll get updates on kind of where we're working, the obstacles we're running against up against and you can help us through prayer. You can actually pray for these operations that we're trying to get done to rescue these people. Absolutely. But ultimately, we want to encourage folks to not only get educated, get involved prayerfully, but get behind supporting the organization. They're working in countries uh, globally um, on a variety of continents. We mentioned Latin America, Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia. You can get more information again online at IJM. That's for International Justice Missions, IJM.org. And Sean Litton, Vice President, Field Operations for International Justice Missions, we appreciate the time. Thank you so much, Craig. It's been a pleasure. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know us, the baby boomer generation. Those born between 1946 and 1964, 76 million all told. And as... That group of Americans reaches retirement age, sometimes even younger. 10,000 a day become eligible for retirement. It's commonly referred to by retirement planning experts as the grain of America. But of course, with this huge number of Americans that are getting older come all the things that attend older age, disability, illness, just the process of growing older. We are seeing an explosion 
in home caregiving, and it's for many reasons, many for very good altruistic reasons that families see the value and honor in keeping a loved one at home. We certainly did that with my grandmother when she was not really capable of staying by herself anymore. We never really thought that a so-called rest home, retirement center or such was appropriate because we wanted her to live out her years in her home and with her family. And by the grace of God, we were successful at accomplishing just that. Still growing numbers in America today that perhaps um, never thought about buying long-term care insurance, mistakenly thought they had it when they didn't, find out that something has happened. It could be uh, the product of growing older, just could be illness, disease, or an accident that causes a loved one to now be confined at home, and suddenly you find yourself in the position of being a caregiver. And while initially it sounds like you're just simply doing your duty, after a while... The days turn into weeks, turn into months, in some cases turn into years. And as we learn, many of the people that do the caregiving wind up, while certainly doing a great and honorable thing, wind up shortening their own lives. How can we make life a bit better, a bit easier for caregivers, many of whom feel like they have no hope? Joining me now is Peter Rosenberger. He is founder of Caregivers with Hope. And Peter, great to have you on the program. But first, let's kind of put this in context, if you would, by sharing a bit of your own story with your spouse, Gracie. Well, Craig, thank you for having me. And um, I, it has been a journey for me. I, I've been doing this now in my 30th year. I met my wife a couple of years after she had had a horrible accident, and we met at college. She had returned to college, and you know, I saw that she limped, and I knew that she had had a wreck, and I saw that she had some scars on her lower legs, particularly. And uh, didn't, But I didn't really have any frame of reference of what it was like to be in a relationship with someone who was hurt. She'd already had 20 operations by the time I met her, uh, but we were young and optimistic and, and, and both very much in love. And quite truthfully, Craig, she's a babe. You know, and so <laughs> I was just thinking, this, this girl's a babe. But then I, then I heard her sing, and, and I knew that, that, that the soul that was there was just somebody that I wanted to care for for the rest of, of our life together. And I had no idea. I was just as dumb as a box of rocks when it came to this sort of thing. And uh, to give you a, a fast forward here, we're up to now that I can count 78 surgeries. Now, that's not all the procedures. That's just surgeries. She gave up both of her legs in the 90s. She's had more than $9 million worth of medical bills. It's probably closer to 10 or 11 now. 60-plus uh, doctors. I stopped counting at 62 years ago, and she's had a dozen more come on since then, I think. So it's just it just keeps escalating. Seven different uh, insurance companies and, and 12 different hospitals where she's been treated. So this has been a medical nightmare. Uh, that has never plateaued. We've had mo seasons where things are okay and it's not quite as dire. We do some fun things together, but then we have just constant grind of, of issues that are going on. My message is all about stewardship for the caregiver. And I have to realize that I didn't do this to my wife. I didn't break her, and I can't unbreak her. I can't fix this, and God has me here for a much different purpose. This challenge, you know, when uh, we exchange vows at the altar, it's uh, in sickness and in health, and we kind of rattle through that. And 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 we like the uh, we like the living and the health part, the uh, sickness and the death to us part portion. We really don't give much context to. And you know, in all fairness, we're young, we're starting out a new life together with uh, our loved ones, so we're probably not thinking about how things may end. And yet, inevitably, we know that everything has a beginning, a middle 
middle and an end. And and for a lot of people that uh, maybe suddenly there's just that sense of, oh, my goodness, I, I don't recall signing up for this. Well, and they did. And, and that's just the bottom line. They did. And now some of the people that are doing this are not doing it for a spouse. They're doing it for uh, a parent or they're doing it for a cousin or a brother or a neighbor. Or there's just there, there's all kinds of things. Uh, I, I spend a, a good bit of time talking with uh, people in the homosexual community that are taking care of somebody that's a, that's a friend, a neighbor, a partner or whatever, that they didn't have any kind of vows or anything. They're just in this situation. Uh, it, it's it's everywhere. It's affecting everybody. If you notice the other day uh, when um, uh, the Denver Broncos won the won the game, the, that's the first time that the AFC Championship trophy has been accepted by a caregiver because Bolin has uh, uh, the owner has Alzheimer's and his wife accepted it. It's everywhere, and it's affecting everybody from every kind of walk of life, whether you're married, whether you're just neighbors, whether you're, in, if you're living together. It doesn't matter. It's everywhere. If you love somebody, you're going to be a caregiver. If you live long enough, you're probably going to need one. All right, let's talk a bit about uh, this sudden shifting of roles. And I say shifting of roles because oftentimes we're, we're accustomed with, uh, you know, we're raising a family, raising kids, so uh, uh, doing things like fixing meals and bathing them and changing diapers. Well, we get all of that. We also get about the fact that they're eventually going to grow out of that process and be able to care for themselves. Sadly, that's not true in all cases. And when we talk about caregiving, particularly for the elderly, we understand that the, the real end scenario is probably going to be deterioration, not the hopes of suddenly getting better. And so, you you know, you begin to sick, get sick at 84, and by the time you're 90, you're healthy as can be again. It doesn't work out that way. No, it doesn't. And you don't also have with uh, families with special needs children. Mm. Uh, my brother has a daughter with cerebral palsy. She's been this way uh, from birth, and she's basically like taking care of a two-year-old, and she's 27. So you're dealing with uh, so many different dynamics in here. And what I what I found, Craig, is this. I mean, I've been doing this a long time, but what I found is the task of caregiving, uh, whether it's changing diapers, whether it's making meals or bathing, and all those kinds of things. Those things can be tedious and even unpleasant. But that's not really the heartache of a caregiver, I have found. Most people can kind of punch through those things. The heartache of the caregiver is that there doesn't seem to be any end in sight, that this thing could go on for, for so long and that they are losing themselves in this journey. Uh, caregivers suffer from three eyes, Greg. They lose their independence, they lose their identity, and they become isolated. And it's in that craziness that most caregivers start to despair and, and start to, to struggle. Those late-night conversations with the ceiling fan, and, and you're just wondering, is this ever going to end? Am I ever going to be able to kind of get, get on with my life? And it slowly dawns on a lot of caregivers that this is our life. This is it. This is my life. And this has been my life for 30 years. And I've had to learn that I can live a healthier life in this. I could be happy in this, or I can be miserable in this. That, that's my choice. You know, I can't choose in, on the, the painful parts of life. We're going to have pain no matter how it comes, but I can choose on how I'm going to respond to it. And that's what I'm trying to learn as a caregiver each and every day myself. And, and I've also learned that healthy caregivers make better caregivers. And I can't simply throw myself recklessly at taking care of my wife with no regards to my own healthiness. 
And if I don't, if, if I do that, I end up compromising the one person standing between her and even further disaster, which is the caregiver. So there, there's a complex set of emotional challenges that go on with this, and that's what I'm speaking to, these caregivers that are in the, the valley of the shadow of death, and it is a long valley. But you don't have to be miserable in it. We're as happy or as miserable as we want to be. So a lot of it has to do with a matter of perspective and attitude, and I want to talk a bit about that when we come back, because, you know, truth be told, this is oftentimes lonely, very stressful. I recall when my godfather went through this with my godmother, who had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Um, she had a very difficult, very painful last three, three and a half years, and it got to the point in the last year or so of her illness, she did not want to be left alone for even a nanosecond. He was not only her primary caregiver, but she demanded that he be in her side for every second. I mean, he could have a neighbor come over to watch her just to give him an opportunity to go to the store. And as he is driving to the store, the poor thing would be on the telephone, on the cell phone, calling him, wanting to know when he was coming back. So dealing with those realities, how do we go about having the right perspective on this, the right attitude, so that indeed you as a caregiver can survive. We'll come back to that part of the equation. Peter Rosenberger, founder of Caregivers with Hope. Information, by the way, on the web at caregiverswithhope.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Peter Rosenberger, our guest. He is founder of Caregivers with Hope on the web at caregiverswithhope.com. You know, Peter, as you know from your own experience, this can be physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally, oftentimes financially draining to the point where a lot of people say, hope, I, I don't see any way out. For me, hope is, and I've heard Caregivers at kind of the end of their physical, mental, emotional, relational rope say, for me, the only way out, the only relief is when my spouse passes. How do you go about changing your attitude, your mentality regarding this, this challenge that you're facing and, and be able to find hope? Well, there, there's several things. Uh, hope, hope for the Caregiver, and that's the name of my, my new book, is not hearts and rainbows and unicorns. It is the conviction that we as caregivers can live a calmer, healthier, and even more joyful life, even while dealing with grim realities. Now, everything in Scripture tells me that that's the case for us in our Christian walk. You know, Paul said this clearly over and over. You know, we see through the glass darkly right now. We don't see what's going on. We don't always know. Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm, I'm going to prepare a place for you. It, that's, our, that's our hope. Our hope is not in eliminating all the unpleasant things of this earth. That, that is not our hope. That is beyond my pay grade. Look down at your hands. If you don't see nail prints, this ain't yours to fix. Mm. You know, that's not our hope, is that we're some, somehow going to live a pain-free life. Our hope is knowing that God has spared us as believers through something for, from something far worse than multiple amputations and Alzheimer's and, and Parkinson's and, and 30 years worth of, of chronic pain. He spared us from something far greater than that. And our hope is that as he is working out his purposes in all these things, we can trust him with that knowledge of, that he has saved us. He has rescued us from something far worse than this. And he is building this thing in a way that we just can't see. He's weaving his redemption through stuff that we just can't understand. 
And that's what gives us a new perspective so that we can look at the things in our life with trials and knowing that His perfect will is being worked out. And, and Romans 8.28 comes into play here. You know, for I know these things. He, Paul didn't say, for I'm, I'm guessing. He said, I know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purposes. That's our confidence. So when we're looking at somebody who we're having to, we can't reach anymore because they're impaired through pharmaceuticals or dementia or whatever, we can love them tapped in because we're tapped in the inexhaustible love of God through Christ. And you said before we went to the break, you know, that, that struggle that we have that when, when they won't let go and, and the, 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 your godfather was trying to go to the grocery store and, and, and your godmother kept calling. This is what I want to tell my fellow caregivers. They're going to do stuff that, that's going to absolutely drive us up the wall sometimes. They're not doing it to us. They're just doing it. And we don't have to take everything so personally. They don't want to be sick. They don't want to deal with dementia. They don't want to deal with chronic pain. They don't want to be doing all this stuff. We just happen to be the closest person to them. But we can learn to let some of that go and not take it all personally. You know, what is it Mother Teresa once said? You know, bless you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the privilege of serving you in your many horrible disguises. Mm. And, and you know, you can, you can be all bent out of shape about this. But my goal for caregivers is that when we do stand at a grave, and one day, most likely, we will. And that's the goal, by the way, is that for a caregiver to stand at the grave, not be in the grave first. And that's a hard thing to say, but that's the reality. But that we stand there without clenched fist, without fists that are clenched at, at our loved one, at families and friends that didn't maybe help the way we wanted them to, at, at, at ourselves for what we could have, would have, should have done or even at God, that we can learn to live peacefully with these things. Even if your loved one is not dealing with all this stuff, you're not living a trouble-free life. Everybody's got something going on. This is just a little bit more accelerated, and it requires us to, to bend our will into the will of God more and faster than we probably would otherwise. Is part of this, Peter, uh, sort of the, the natural flesh inclination to push back against... Um, this aspect of the reality of life, I, I, I often, when, when there's been debates over things like, uh, oh, we want to legalize, uh, say, uh, physician-assisted suicide, because we, we refer to this as death with dignity, and I, and I often think to myself, well, wait a minute, since when is death dignified? Uh, the deterioration of our body and going through pain and agony and all of that stuff, there's nothing dignified about that. Why don't we focus on living, living with dignity? And death, sadly, is a product of man's sin nature. It's our fallen condition is it is it helpful for the caregiver to be reminded of that or are we just kind of pushing back against the reality of the grave and maybe our own sense of of mortality well i think what happens is is we we are we are screaming out for relief and so we we rush to things like uh you know euthanizing things like that and and so forth we're just screaming out for relief and and i i've taken a different path. I mean, again, I've, I've been doing this for, for three decades. I've been doing this since the first Cold War. <laughs> but uh, you, you learn to accept that maybe relief is not the thing that we're supposed to be seeking so much, is learning to trust God in this. And we place our scared hand in his scarred hand and learn to say, okay, well, how do I deal with this today? See, nobody can do this for a lifetime, Craig, but anybody can do it for 24 hours. And that's really kind of how we as caregivers have to learn to live. You can only start screaming and crying and praying and, and God bail me out of this, God bail me out of this, God get me out of this, or the government get me out of this, somebody get me out of this. You can only do that for so long before that becomes kind of tedious. 
And you have to learn to say, okay, how do I be sustained in this? And your prayer changes. God, sustain me in this. Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. So instead of focusing on our suffering, focus instead on our serving. Well, exactly. And, and, and focus on what God is doing in the midst of these things. You know, you go back and look at Solzhenitsyn after he got out of the Russian prison. And he said, you know, bless you prison for the change you've made in my life. I mean, something happened to him in that prison. Corey Tim Boone. You know, uh, I can just go down the list of, of people, Victor Franco and all these other people who experienced life on a much greater level in the midst of some very, very harsh, harsh thing. Nelson Mandela, he went into prison almost as a terrorist and came out a statesman. And there's a point where we walk through these suffering, we walk through these bleak things, but if we are willing to, to go inward and to be changed in a healthy direction through this thing, we find that we, we can experience a, a quality of life that we thought was unattainable. There's beauty everywhere. There's excitement everywhere. There's joy everywhere. But if sometimes we allow these things to obfuscate our view because this does affect us, like you said, our health, our emotions, our lifestyle, our profession, our money. Everything about this is affected. But is that necessarily a bad thing, and is it causing us to act like jerks? See, I, I'm from the mindset that, that this does not cause character defects. It amplifies what's already there, mm. and it gives us an opportunity to deal with this in a healthy manner if we so choose. And the question then becomes, like I said at the beginning of the conversation, it's all about stewardship. How can I be the best steward for my wife? How can I be the best steward for me? What is the best choice for the unit? And as your godfather found out, that sometimes he had to get away. And he has to recognize that it's more important for him to have moments of respite and healthiness, and he's just going to have to not answer the phone so that he can be a healthy person. She needs him healthy, and people that are in pain or people that are diseased or whatever, impaired, they can't always see that. And so it's up to the caregiver to make those unilateral decisions without guilt, recognizing that they're, doing, they're loving them better when they're becoming healthier as an individual. And of course, the irony is we, we also sometimes, I think, Peter, focus on our inconvenience, the, the difficulty, the trial that we are facing, and we perhaps, as close as we are to the situation, uh, cause our, our, our perspective to become very distant. And by that, I mean we forget about the fact that that individual who was in the bed doesn't want to be there, didn't ask for this, doesn't prefer this, doesn't see this as a better option, would much rather be up and about and living life as opposed to being bedridden or dependent upon another person to do everything from take them to the bathroom, to change their diapers, to shower them, feed them, shave them, all of that. Um, we sometimes forget that. And, and to remember that when they do, on occasions, lash out, when they do get upset, it's only at the closest person because they're really looking at their circumstance and their situation, and maybe because we're, we're so close, we lose eyesight of that. It's very easy to do it. That's where the flashpoints come as a caregiver. And, you know, when I get in those points, I, it, it's hard to push a wheelchair with clenched fist. Mm -hmm. I've tried it. It doesn't work. You can't, be, you can't be that hacked off and try to push a wheelchair. And, and you know, I can't, if I'm going to change a dressing on my wife, I'd rather do it with, with tears on my cheek than with my teeth grinding. You know, and I think it helps for me to remember how much Christ condescends to me. And if I keep that in perspective, I usually can navigate through these these quagmires and these landmines a little bit easier. 
Um, but when I when I get so wrapped up in my own self, that's when it's hard. But but there are, there are tools and strategies that we as caregivers. That's what we're all about at Caregivers with Hope is helping those caregivers learn to how to navigate these things so you don't set off those those emotional landmines that seem to go off in these in these high crisis moments. And I want to encourage listeners, by the way, Peter, on the heels of that exhortation, to take advantage of the website. There's a lot of great resources there. The big message, as you're hearing tonight, is you're not alone. Um, yes, it could be worse than this, so be grateful in what you have. It's a matter of your attitude, your perspective, and and as Peter, I think, very aptly mentioned, uh, uh, people don't turn nasty and cruel because they're dealing with someone that is in the important circumstance of needing or requiring a caregiver. It, it rather amplifies that pre-existing character flaw. And so to learn how to Examine this through the magnifying glass of Scripture and then get the right attitude, the right perspective from a biblical viewpoint, from Christ's viewpoint, can be all the difference, can be very freeing for you. Information again on the web at caregiverswithhope.com. That's caregiverswithhope.com. And our thanks to Peter Rosenberger, founder of Caregivers with Hope, for being with us tonight on Lifeline. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.